please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, come now and overshadow your word. Lord, pour out your power upon the scriptures as they have been read and as now they will be taught. Lord, give me, the preacher of the word, clarity and the ability to speak in the authority of your church under the authority of your apostle Paul. Lord, grant us all listening ears and receptive hearts. And Lord, I pray that this would lead to great joy and fruitfulness in your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> over, the, uh, over the next few weeks, the lectionary, the assigned readings for each Sunday, are going to be taking us through a series of readings from First and Second Timothy. And First and Second Timothy are a part of what we call the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles of Paul. Paul is writing, in this case, to his young lieutenant Timothy, who he has left in charge of the church in a major Roman colony city of Ephesus. So these letters deal with ordering the life of a local congregation in a prosperous city, a large prosperous city in the setting of the Roman Empire. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we just heard read, and uh, Josh, I'm sure, is very grateful that he was assigned the reading this morning. <laughs> but 1 Timothy chapter 2 has some terrific instruction and doctrine in it, and we are urged in that passage to pray for rulers. Uh, we're told that God desires everyone to be saved. We're told that Jesus is the one and only mediator between a holy God and a sinful humanity. We're told not to quarrel and to dress modestly and not ostentatiously. So this is great stuff that needs to be expounded upon. But it is difficult to hear any of the preceding because of the difficult verses, the even perhaps alarming verses that come at the end of the chapter. And so in case um, Josh was becoming quieter during that part, let me read that again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So how are we going to make sense of this problematic passage? How are we going to deal with God's word for us in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, first of all, we can't do it in 20 minutes. So I apologize to uh, children's catechesis. Adult catechesis may run a little longer than usual this morning. Um, also, I, some of what I'm going to teach is, is stuff that you've heard me teach in the past. If you've been around to hear that, it's not going to hurt you to hear it again. And as I say, it makes me feel better to know that you've heard it one more time. So with that in mind, one way of handling this passage, one way of handling this passage is that we could just dodge it. We could just evade it. Just preach something else. Why would we do that? Well, because it's offensive to our modern sensibilities, and quite frankly, we're just a little bit embarrassed by it. It seems to reinforce the conventional secular wisdom that Christianity is inherently misogynistic. Dr. Abigail Favalli is the Dean of Humanities and Professor of English at George Fox University, and in her new book, 
the genesis of gender, she relates that this was exactly her conclusion during her college experience. By the end of the term, I had wholeheartedly adopted the professor's way of thinking and reading. The Bible was no longer the word of God, something trustworthy and deeply true. It was a man-made artifact and an instrument of women's oppression. So let's just pretend this passage isn't there. That's one way to deal with it. But for traditional Christians, this really isn't an option because we believe that all of this is God's authoritative self-revelation. So we just can't ignore this text into oblivion. And if we don't ignore the text altogether, we might be tempted to say, listen, we might be tempted to say something like this. Well, of course, that was just their culture. Poor old Rabbi Paul was so bound by his cultural limitations and expectations that he could not help but perpetuate, quote unquote, the patriarchy trademark. But here's the problem with that kind of reasoning. First of all, as we're going to see, St. Paul was actually cutting against the grain of Greek and Jewish culture in the first century. So the assertion that Paul is hopelessly mired in his culture is just factually incorrect. You can't be mired in your culture if you're going against your culture. And secondly, we can't use this argument because Paul bases this admonition not on his culture, but on the order of creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He bases it on the order of creation. And when I have heard people say that's just Paul's culture, then I ask, well, then why does he argue from the order of creation? And here's where you are bound to go. He's just wrong. Okay, then what else in here is just wrong? But there is a more problematic component of the that's just their culture objection. And here it is. Listen, it means that we ourselves have believed the myth of progress. In fact, we're engaging in chronological snobbery. This is the error, as J.I. Packer has said, which maintains the newer is truer, only what is recent is decent, every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be held as the last word on its subject. Chronological snobbery assumes that Paul's culture was wrong because it came before us. And that by the mere fact that we live 20 centuries later, we live in a more enlightened and correct age. And my question to that is, says who? By what criteria are we saying that our culture is inherently better? What external, what external fixed reference point are we judging cultures by? None. We just merely assume it. You see, we need to realize that the sword of the cultural argument, it's just their culture, can cut both ways. Maybe the problem, listen, maybe the problem is that we can't hear God's word in this passage because of our culture, not that Paul is in error because of his culture. But ultimately, the problem of arguing that this passage doesn't apply to us because it is merely a product uh, or an, an artifact 
of first century Hellenistic or Jewish culture is that we will start doing this with every single uncomfortable passage of Scripture, every passage that challenges the idols of our culture. And before you know it, we will have excused ourselves from every text that would call us to live differently from the secular culture around us. So let's have the courage, brothers and sisters, let's have the courage to try to work through this passage and yet remain under its authority. In fact, we are bound to do so. So in order to do that, the very first step is just to understand exactly what this text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, is. Thomas Oden, the late Thomas Oden, says that in these verses, we are still speaking of proper instruction, listen, for public worship. Proper instruction for public worship. The general subject is public prayer discussed in terms of the two genders, male and female. So this is a passage instructing Timothy on how he is to order, listen carefully, how he is to order the worship and teaching life of the gathered church in the city of Ephesus. <clears throat> so the first thing about Christian worship that we hear is that, listen, women are permitted to be learners. We just read right over that as if that's not important. But listen to what it says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. You see, that statement indicates that Paul is encouraging Timothy to go against the grain of the Jewish and Hellenistic culture of the time by allowing women to be learners just like men in the same exact public space as men. In fact, the prominence of women in the Christian church was one of the things that was condemned, that it was condemned for by its critics like Celsus, who despised Christianity because it appealed to, quote, slaves, women, slaves, women, and little children. Christianity is to be despised because it appeals to slaves, women, and little children, cutting across the culture of that day. In first century Judaism, women were not allowed to read Torah in public, and they were confined to the outer court of the temple, and Greek women were even more limited in their access to public, public learning. But now, St. Paul, the apostle, writes that women, listen, just like men, are to be learners. And listen, learning quietly and with all submission, we hear that and we say, oh, that's just terrible there to learn quietly and with all submission. But that's not just how women are to approach Scripture. It's how all disciples come before Holy Scripture. We are all called to quietness and to full submission when receiving instruction from God's Word. The attitude of submission before the Word of God is not just for women, it's for men too, isn't it? <laughs> and little bitty babies. <laughs> and so we breathe a sigh of relief for a moment, but then it gets worse. <laughs> I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So how are we to understand this? Well, using the Reformation hermeneutic, the Reformation interpretive model, of interpreting scripture with scripture, 
you and I know that we cannot absolutize this text. We can't say, all right, women are not allowed to teach, period, full stop. Because in another pastoral epistle, just another pastoral epistle, Paul gives specific instructions that women should teach. Older women, this is Titus 2, verses 3 and 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Yes, we admit it. We are guilty as charged. Christians think that women should love their husbands and their children. Sorry about that. Again, using scripture to illumine scripture, we know from Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla, along with her husband, Aquila, served as a teacher even of the learned Apollos. This is Acts 18, verse 26. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. As far as remaining quiet in church, we cannot, again, absolutize that point either because Paul himself gives instructions for how women are to publicly pray, publicly pray, and prophesy when the church gathers in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Public prayer and prophecy are both actions that by necessity require speech, and therefore it cannot be absolutized when we say remaining quiet. So, the issue seems to be how women exercise teaching authority. The issue seems to be how are women to exercise teaching authority. And here the text is helpful, as it should be, obviously. The phrase, listen, exercise authority, in exercise, as in exercise authority over a man, is based on a Greek word found only here in all of the New Testament. So, that means we have to go to Greek texts outside of the New Testament to get its meaning, and there that word means to usurp, usurp authority or to domineer, to usurp authority to do, or to domineer. Why did Paul feel it necessary to make that point to the Ephesian church? We do not have a specific reason given in the text. I wish we did because I hate to do what I'm about to do next. It's, it's, in one sense, it's speculative, but it's reasonable. Here it is. I think the most reasonable explanation is that Ephesus was, this is a fact, the home of the great temple of Artemis. Remember in Acts, you know, that riot that started? Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. There was a whole riot about that thing. The goddess Artemis was served by an all-female priesthood in Ephesus, and men were excluded from its core practices. Thus, Paul, it seems to me, is telling Timothy to remind women in worship that this is not like the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis, which dominated that city. Rather, they are worshipers and learners. Women are worshipers and learners alongside of men in the Christian community, and they are not to dominate the Christian community. And I think that's reasonable. Nevertheless, listen, brothers and sisters, this is critical. As it regards the church gathered for worship, as we are this morning, as much as it may offend our modern egalitarian sensibilities, we cannot evade the truth that the apostle, in the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and in light of the order of creation, reserves the teaching office in the gathered body for men. But if you want to know the key that unlocks the reading of this whole passage, 
it actually happens to be the strangest verse in the entire text. Listen to this, and I'm going to read it and add the uh, definite article that's actually there in the Greek. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing. She is saved by the childbearing? I mean, I thought all people were saved by Jesus. Where in all of Scripture could we possibly find a woman being saved through childbearing? (laughs) For those of you who are listening on the podcast, we have a giant icon of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the wall. You see, those who read this passage through the lens of the great tradition and the early church see this as a reference to the Virgin Mary, and thus everything that comes before it is read through the lens of Mary as well, and that informs everything that I have just taught you, taught you from this passage. Mary herself is saved through childbearing because she gave birth to the Savior. You see, those who read this passage in that way, find the key to unlock the passage. One of the reasons that we as theologically conservative Protestants sometimes sideline conservative, conservative, theologically conservative Protestants sideline and diminish women is because we have refused to dwell in prayer and in study into God's call of the woman Mary in the restoration of the human race. That's why we needed to hear that passage, which did not come in the lectionary today. It was selected by the preacher. That passage from Luke chapter 1 is the gospel text. The Annunciation account clearly demonstrates God's exalted place for women in his plan of salvation. And I want to take you through that and apply that to the passage we just read. Why would I do that? Because Paul is making a Marian reference. I'm convinced of it. And I can explain why I come to that conclusion as I take you through this. That phrase that we heard from the angel Gabriel as he greets Mary, uh, that phrase, the Lord is with you, is used only once in the New Testament, and it is used here for Mary. That phrase, however, has a long tradition in the Old Testament where it points to receiving a call from God and supernatural empowerment for ministry. It is a phrase uttered to people who are key players in salvation history. It's used towards Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. Gideon hears it addressed to him in Judges 6, verse 17. Jeremiah in Jeremiah verse, chapter 1, verse 8. So right away, we know that Mary is, the, is a key human player in salvation history. And Mary responds to the angel that she is, she says, I am the Lord's servant. That is the same title, the Lord's servant is the same title that the prophets of the Old Testament embraced, the servant of the Lord. So the early church sees Mary as a prophet, and her oracle is the word made flesh. Early Christians equated the role of Mary with that of the Bible itself. She is the page on which the pure word of God is written. 
So Mary is called, she is empowered, she is set apart to a unique office that no man can hold. She is the ultimate human minister of divine grace because through her calling and obedience comes the Savior of the world. Remember how Paul, listen, and this is the connection. Why would I jump to this? Remember how Paul referenced the first Eve? It was the woman who was deceived and became a transgression. Eve, he uses the name Eve. And that's why I think he's making this connection. Paul references the first Eve in Genesis. Well, typologically, in the passage we heard of, on the Annunciation, Mary is the new Eve. She is the new Eve. And I want to point, I want you to notice this here. Some of you have heard me teach this before. But this passage from Luke is almost a point-by-point reversal of the fall as narrated in Genesis chapter 3. Listen, what happens in Genesis 3? Eve is approached by a fallen angel. Mary, on the other hand, is greeted by the holy angel Gabriel. Eve believes the serpent's lies. She doubts God's word and chooses her own will. Mary believes God's word, the good news brought to her by Gabriel, and she chooses God's will, the reversal. Eve's disobedience leads her to flee from the presence of God. Mary's obedience causes her to be overshadowed by the presence of God as when God's glory overshadowed the Mount of Transfiguration. Eve's rebellion gave birth to death and the curse. Mary's obedience defeated the curse and gave birth to the conqueror of death. Eve's disobedience brought or Eve's disobedience began the destruction of the old creation. Mary's obedience is the beginning of a new creation. Why haven't we been taught this? Because we're afraid of it. We're afraid that we're just going to start worshiping that woman, Mary. And what's happened in, as the result is we have negated the key role of women in salvation history because we refuse to take God's whole counsel of his word. So what, is, or the, what are the implications of this? Well, as Eve was the archetype of fallen womanhood, Mary is the archetype of true redeemed womanhood. As such, she directly speaks to the question of women in ministry. And if we will allow Mary back into the canon of Scripture, if we will heed the voice of the early church, certain truths will become undeniable. And number one is God exalts the woman who offers herself in sacrificial obedience. God exalts the woman who offers herself in sacrificial obedience. Speaking of herself, Mary says that God has exalted those of humble estate. Luke chapter 1, verse 52. God has exalted those of humble estate. Number two, Mary reveals that God uses and blesses the woman who submits to God's word in her life. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word. And then later in Luke 1.45, we did not read this, her cousin Elizabeth says to her, Blessed is she who believed that there would be the fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
God uses and blesses the woman who submits to his word in her life. Number three, Mary shows us that God employs women for called, set-apart ministry. No, it is not a headship ministry. Mary is not the head of the apostles. She is not the head of the church. But her ministry is not diminished because of that. Her ministry is not of lesser worth because of that. In fact, Mary's ministry is the most important ministry ever offered by any human person other than that of her son. Her ministry is essential. Listen, her ministry is essential and complementary to the priestly minister, priestly ministry of Christ because it is Mary's little lamb that is slain to take away the sins of the world. So God raised woman, as Paul points out, the first to become a transgressor, the first to fall, the first to fall. God raises woman in his great grace and wisdom to be the highest and most revered of all humanity in the person of Mary. Now, when I say that, it makes many people uncomfortable. And it's because of the deficit of the teaching we've received. We've not heeded the, the whole witness of the word of God and of the early church. Because apart from the supreme ministry of Christ himself, the God-man, God called Mary to the most important, most exalted ministry ever performed by a human being. And, there's, and here's the point that confounds. Listen, in this, here's the point that confounds our obsession with the cultural idol of power. We hear it all the time. Power dynamics, intersectionality. This is the point that confounds our obsession with the cultural idol of power. Mary receives her ministry not by grasping for power, not by asserting her will, just the opposite, but by, please listen, maybe even write it down, by prefiguring the kenosis, in other words, the self-emptying of her son Jesus, the Son of God, who himself humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Luke chapter 1, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant. This is kenosis talk. This is self-emptying talk. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Self-emptying. When Mary empties herself, she becomes full of God. More spacious than the heavens. Containing the uncontainable. And when we do that, it will happen to us too. She, she is the primordial. She is the prefiguring of all discipleship. When we empty ourselves in obedient love for God, we will be made full of God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and through 7 and verse 9, you know these verses. Mary's prefiguring of, of what it means to empty yourself for God's will, but... It's perfectly revealed and perfectly done, transcendently so, only in a divine in the way that it can happen by God doing this. In Philippians 2, the, the kenosis hymn, the Christ hymn, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We crave power. God wants to exalt us. There's a difference. May the Lord Jesus Christ grant all of us the grace to learn this way of self-emptying, loving obedience to the word of God from his most holy, most blessed, most pure mother, the Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.